Hello, and today we are going to be focusing on the financial services relationship um, between the US and the EU, focusing a little bit on what has been happening since the last financial crisis, what were the, the shoots of, of reason that we found um, uh, leading us to where we were before this COVID crisis, and what, what are regulators doing on both sides of the Atlantic in response to the current crisis? With me today, I have Jim Allen, CFA. Uh, he's head of the America's Capital Markets Policy at CFA Institute and has held that position for almost 20 years. So again, he's lived through both crises. He's seen quite a bit of regulatory response, um, both in the EU and the US. And um, I, I look forward very much to, to discussing some key issues with him today. Hello, Jim. Hello, Jacina. how are you? I'm I'm very well. I think also let me uh, tell our our listeners that this is a two two series podcast um, because again the subjects are vast and we try to to split it over two podcasts. Um, so first of all, looking a little bit at the policy responses to the original global financial crisis of 2008, which started a lot of the regulatory. Um, policy making that intervened before the COVID crisis came on. The 2008 financial crisis highlighted many issues on regulation and supervision of, fin of financial markets and was really a knee-jerk response that sought to control um, financial markets. The EU cooperated with the G20 to put in place a series of measures to build more financial stability and investor confidence. This was done both through the new Basel III framework, which was agreed upon in end 2010, which was a new supervisory framework with strengthened capital and liquidity requirements. Uh, in the EU, a new capital markets directive was then adopted in the EU to really um, help the resilience of the EU banking sector. Um, this was the forerunner of uh, the ambitious banking union plan in the EU. With this banking union, the EU created a new single supervisory mechanism and a single resolution mechanism for the euro area banks. There was also a crisis management mechanism for banks with new recovery and resolution tools. A further national deposit protection scheme for retail depositors across the EU is still in negotiation today. This, of course, because of national rules of consumer protection, which doesn't facilitate rulemaking on the EU level for this. Again, now we, we look at the US. In the US, similar measures were introduced, um, but it does seem as if the US has been more agile and better able to manage, for example, the issue of non-performing loans. The Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission, FCIC, which was composed of a group of experts, which was appointed by US Congress in 2009, looked at the causes and led ultimately to the establishment of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act of 2010. And I'll be asking Jim some of his uh, conclusions he drew from uh, that rulemaking. Again, that introduced new rules concerning regulatory capital, designation of the largest banks as systemically important financial intermediaries, the famous CIFIS, um, CEO compensation disclosure, and the Volcker rule. 
Now, Jim, um, what for you were really um, in the main the with the introduction of these uh, reforms and acts? What what were the main measures that really uh, addressed that agility that the U.S. showed in um, in looking at the banks and and the impact they had on bad bank behavior? Um, okay, that's that's a very <laughs> very in-depth the question. I'll try to answer it as, as succinctly as possible. And of course, everything basically ran through Dodd uh, through the Dodd Frank rule of 2010. We were a little slow in getting, you know, the the rules put into place. But once we got going, there were a number of things in there. Probably the, you know, there were two. There were three primary issues that were dealt with. One was the Volcker Rule, which dealt with proprietary trading on the part of, of banks. Um, we had put in our position, which basically was to capitalize you know, investment banks separately from the commercial banks. They didn't go our route. Uh, but nevertheless, I think that that's still probably the right, right approach. Another issue was, of course, how to deal with the derivatives and some of the rules with regard to central counterparties and the like. Our concern here at CFA Institute was by essentially forcing a lot of those over-the-counter derivatives into central counterparties, uh, you know, you, the sort of almost universal central counterparties, that they would be uh, traded, they'd have greater transparency, but by putting those things all into one sort of large omnibus, one or two or three omnibus central counterparties that you ended up consolidating that risk. Previously, before the 2008 financial crisis, you know, a lot of the banks had their own sort of bankruptcy remote um, and bankruptcy remote um, uh, subsidiaries that manage their over-the-counter derivatives. This then was taken that away, put it into a central counterparty. And now all of a sudden we were creating a massive new uh, systemically important uh, financial institution that you know had been able to function reasonably well private prior to these crises. But, um, you know, as in such institutions are want to do, you look ahead a generation or two, they think they've got it all figured out. And all of a sudden they start making the same mistakes that had been made 25 or 30 years earlier. So there's some concern still with regard to the CCPs out there. Probably the third part was the resolution of banks and uh, of failed banks, uh, looking at the single point of entry as a primary means of doing that. Um, you know, there's some technical uh, relations, I mean, discussions related to the point of central, point of central uh, entry, but um, of single entry. But I think the big thing was when we got into the latest crisis with COVID in March and April, those things were sort of thrown to the wind and they were trying to, to just basically throw a lot of money into the system to provide liquidity and the like. Uh, one final thing, probably that in, in our minds, one of the biggest things that, that was an issue prior to 2008 and was dealt with, I think, pretty handily by Dodd-Frank was the credit rating agencies. Um, they were conflicted beforehand. Part of the conflict conflict that they had was they had a they had a 
they had a uh, guaranteed market. Everybody had to look to the central, I mean, to the credit rating agencies to determine what kind of capital that they had. Even the banks who were, you know, who had, you know, traditionally been the credit analysis of, of uh, you know, private as well as public companies were looking to the credit rating agencies for that. So they had a they had a guaranteed market, and they sort of took their eye off the ball. What essentially Dodd Frank did was take out of regulation the mandate that everybody had to look to credit rating agencies for um, for determining how much capital they had, how much, you know, how, whether they could invest in these kinds of instruments and the like. So I think that that was one probably particularly, particular success story of Dodd-Frank. Yeah. And, and I think, again, this agility um, in, in addressing the, the measures needed to, uh, to, to look at the original 2008 crisis meant that, um, Again, because the U.S. has an established capital market, uh, which for the EU was the U.K. The U.K. was its established market, let's say, uh, within the EU paraframe. And now that Brexit is moving that U.K. market outside the internal market, um, this is going to have consequences for the relationship between the U.S. and the U.K., but also the U.S. and the EU. The U.S. has a very established equivalence regime uh, with the EU. Uh, the U.K. is still establishing its equivalence regime with the EU, uh, and that is still unknown as, as we speak. Um, again, of course, the use of language. Um, English is spoken uh, in, in the U.S. and the U.S. financial markets. It is obviously also spoken in the Irish market, which is still inside the EU. But um, there may be quite a lot of uh, liquidity movement to the U.S. as a cause of Brexit. Now, um, this again, you know, throws up some of the difficulties in, in this U.S.-EU relationship, which um, has always, uh, let's say, suffered um, because of the dominance of the e U.S. capital market. And when the U.K. was in, in the EU, it, there was a balance. Now this balance is going to have to be refound. Well, what do you think um, U.S. firms are seeing, um, those firms that are doing business in Europe, what are they seeing as challenges for them arising from Brexit and the new geopolitical concern, Jim? Well, of course, one of the big big issues is MIFID, but we'll get into into talk with that later. And we've seen some some effects upon U.S. regulation as a consequence of of MIFID as well. You know, I think in in many ways, you know, you you talk about the U.K. firms trying to, you know, maybe looking for that relationship between and the equivalence between U.S. and U.K. in the absence of an equivalence. Um, equivalence mechanism between the UK and the EU. I guess I would say, first of all, you know, in the macro sense, that you know, the, the money is going to go to the path of least resistance, right? So, if they've got um, a mechanism whereby they can create a beachhead in the United States and use that as a way to to create. Um, you know, the the appearance or, you know, the substance of equivalence for the benefit of the EU and be able to operate there, then, you know, 
obviously they would do that. My guess is if you look at that, that's going to be a temporary situation. Now, the UK firms, you know, would just be buying time to, uh, you know, until the politicians in Europe and in Britain kind of work things, you know, work out the, the equivalence aspect of things. Um, so I, my guess is that's not going to be necessarily a long-term um, long-term solution on the part of the UK UK firms. And there are, you know, some of the big banks in the UK are as, as big and as strong as many of the, the banks here in the United States. So it's not like there can be, you know, a, a merging of those two without creating some very significant antitrust issues, uh, both here in the US as well as probably in, in the UK and elsewhere. So, I, you know, it, to, to be able to, you know, to get around this thing right now, that's probably, you know, the best way to do it. Um, uh, but I, like I say, I just don't expect that's going to be a long-term solution. Um. Of course, you know, we've been talking about um, the geopolitical, we've been talking about the different response mechanisms uh, regarding to the preceding crisis. Um, the biggest development in the EU, which was really a surprise to many, because in 2015, it was just part of a sentence in an action plan on capital markets union, was uh, its vision on sustainable finance and ESG. Uh, the ESG, um, arena has been a very ambitious um, focus for the EU. It has established um, three very key rules on, on it. One, which is the so-called taxonomy. One, which is um, a regulation on investor uh, on duty and disclosure. Uh, and one looking at benchmarks, um, which again, all three have been really groundbreaking. Um, and this has had an impact because the rest of the world uh, is not as ambitious as the EU on this. Now, the EU has set up an international platform on sustainable finance in order to broaden discussion with other countries. Um, but again, uh, the US has uh, led a, a, a different path than the EU. But as we have seen with MIFID, and we will talk about MIFID in podcast number two, um, some regulations that occur on the EU ground, uh, although they might seem to be very constraining, in the end get accepted um, by the rest of the market. Uh, and this may pose a problem uh, for, for, you, for the US. Now, what does the US think when it looks at what is happening in the EU, uh, Jim? In your talking, when you talk to stakeholders, when you talk to asset managers, um, SEC, what, what what is the feeling about what's happening in the EU? Um, are they are they showing a good ambition or are they um, being uh, foolhardy in and in in exploring something that in the midst of a big crisis is going to be a problem? Well, I guess there's a mixed bag here in the U.S. and, and you know we've got societies in and probably. A number of our biggest, uh, the biggest cities here in the U.S., New York, Washington, Boston, uh, all have 
ESG conferences, and they've had them for, I know Boston's had them for several, for several years, if not even dating back almost a decade. Um, New York has had one for a good long time. Uh, the Washington DC office has had one for a couple of years now. So, you know, there's, there's interest in this issue. And from, you know, from our standpoint, of course, if we think that, that our members would be um, not doing what they should be doing if they were not aware of what is happening on this on this front, either on the risk of climate risk that um, you know that that um, the EU is is trying to address, but also the political risk. So you've got a couple of different things that that investors need to be aware of, and they need to be made aware of by their you know investment managers, their investment advisors, and the like. And they, those people need if they're doing their their duty for their clients, they need to be you know looking at addressing these things. How they go about addressing those things is sort of where I think it's sort of the point of of departure between maybe where the EU and the US are. In the US, it's more, hey, you know, you should be aware of this and we're looking at how to get to a point of having a standardized uh, reporting system for this, both for the, you know, the, the issuers of securities, as well as for the investment managers who are investing and, and trying to make sure that investors are aware of how each sides, each party in this, in this dance is, is um, performing what they're looking at, what they're doing and, and the like. Um, but you know, I think in in the e, in the EU, it's more mandated that you need to invest in this way. Um, you need to be you need to be um, uh, in you know sort of putting the sustainable investing forward as the way to do it. At least that's kind of the way it's perceived. Now we've had our foray into sustainable investing before um, 2008. We had a, we, 2008, 2009, 2010, we had a fair bit of investing in, in some of the sustainable, um, sustainable uh, energy programs that didn't turn out terribly well. Um, so I'm, I guess I would look at that as being, Maybe it was just a, a failed experiment. Maybe it was maybe it was too early to get in, uh, but one way or another, the results were not necessarily positive, and investors are sort of looking at that and will you know, would be wise to be aware of of those kinds of those kinds of uh, outcomes. Yeah. So I think um, what we can say that sometimes the paths correlate and sometimes they diverge uh, between the US. And then, of course, uh, you have a, a shorter, let's say, policy circle that depends on, on your presidential elections, as, as that tends to have quite a lot of impact on, on policy making. Uh, so in thank you very much, Tim. In our next podcast, we will take a closer look at the investor protection issue and the product governance issues. So um, stay tuned for that next one. Thank you.